it was very clear that there was a, almost a church within a church. So Alex Cox already perceived as the guy who is doing whatever he does, is the enforcer. My faith was used against me. So is Lori's faith being manipulated? But in the end, the bottom line is sex and money. And what do you think that Lori deserves? That's not for me. To, to That's for the Lord to decide. The Lori Vallow Chad Daybell case has had more than its fair share of bombshells. And just recently, another one dropped. Nearly a year ago, Lori Vallow had been deemed incompetent to stand trial, meaning she was not sufficiently mentally fit to understand the charges or help in her defense. But a judge has just ruled that Lori is now healthy enough to stand trial in Idaho for the murders of her children, JJ and Tylee. She's also facing charges in Arizona, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and the death of Charles Vallow, her fourth husband. Lori has pleaded not guilty to all of these charges, except the one concerning Charles's death. For that, she has yet to enter a plea. Her husband, Chad, has also pleaded not guilty to all of his charges. And now, just as we were about to press publish on this episode, a judge ruled that Lori and Chad will be tried together and that the trial will start on January 9th, 2023. I'm Sarah Trelevin, and this is Madness of Two, an original podcast by USG Audio. Hi, Beth. How's it going? It's been a while. Hey, Sarah. Yes, it sure has. I've been busy looking elsewhere, not at the Daybell case, but wow, <laughs> when I did catch up, I couldn't believe the latest development. I know. We've had a bit of a break from the Daybell case, but it continues to be absolutely wild at every juncture. So Lori was originally found not competent to stand trial in June 2021. But in April 2022, that changed. Her competency has been restored. Remind us what that means. It means she can go to trial now, but what happened? Like, how did they restore her competency? But it's good news in that the case can now move forward because, I mean, the two of them are on the same track, Chad and Lori, in terms of what they're accused of doing. The charges are virtually, not totally, but virtually identical against them. Right. They've been identified as true co-conspirators. Yes. Co-conspirators, but also acting in concert for the underlying crimes for most of the murders. Okay. And my understanding is that Lori's uh, finding of competence is different from being found insane or not criminally responsible. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference? Sure. Insanity, or not being not criminally responsible, looks at your state of mind at the time the crime or crimes were committed. Like, what did you really think was going on, right? Competency to stand trial looks at your state of mind at the time of trial. Do you understand the charges against you? Can you assist in your own defense? They're two very different things. But what's interesting in Idaho is that insanity defense is not available 
That doesn't mean, though, that jurors won't hear about her mental condition, that her infirmities, they probably are going to hear evidence about mental illness. But even though there's no insanity defense, jurors can still listen to the evidence and weigh it in terms of whether or not she had the state of mind required, the intent to kill her children, to conspire to kill Tammy, for example. And there are other crimes that she's charged with as well. But the big ones are conspiracy to commit first-degree murder as well as first-degree murder. So that's really interesting. So it doesn't matter whether she was mentally competent at the time she committed the act she's accused of. The only thing that matters is that she's mentally competent right now to stand trial. Well, to go forward, it's important that she's mentally competent. But when it comes to trial... She does not have an insanity defense to assert. She can introduce evidence of her mental state, that she's mentally ill and maybe couldn't really appreciate everything that she was engaged in, but she can't be found not guilty because of it. So here's the thing in Idaho. Idaho has a couple of options in terms of verdict. The jury can find her guilty of one or more of the crimes. They can find her not guilty of one or more. They also have the option of guilty but insane. Hmm. That is not the same as states that have an insanity defense where you're found not guilty by reason of insanity and you are civilly committed. You go to a psychiatric facility for maybe your whole life or at least until you're no longer a danger to yourself or a third person. In Idaho, if she's found guilty but insane, maybe that means she'll get a little bit more mental health treatment in prison. But she cannot escape responsibility because of her state of mind at the time of the crimes. Okay. And I mean, she was originally found not competent almost a year ago. She's recently been found competent. Could she become not competent again? Could that happen mid-trial? Is this something that is likely? Is this something that's possible? You know, it's a good question. And theoretically, yes, she could be found not competent again. However, whatever it took to restore her competency, hopefully, is going to stick. But there are situations where it is believed that people can fake their incompetency to avoid trial. We just don't have enough of um, details of what's going on here to even believe that she was she was ever faking it. But could she ever be found incompetent again? It's theoretically possible. Do you think there's any likelihood that Chad and Lori are still in touch? Are they able to be in contact right now? Well, I think it's unlikely they were in touch uh, when she was in the psychiatric facility, unless, of course, communications came through the attorneys. But I would think that they are not in contact, but I would think that they should keep their distance because they're not going to help each other (laughs) by communicating. Yeah. They've left such a trail, a digital trail of evidence that they really should keep a distance, (laughs) in my opinion. A few months ago, the Chandler, Arizona Police Department released a ton of material related to their investigation. That's the same conversation you kind of got after, right? Forceful is not the right word, but aggressive towards him as far as tell me what's going on. Yeah, because that was when he... This is an interview with someone named Zulema Pastenis. She was married to Lori's older brother, Alex. At this point, and that's when he said, I think I'm a um, fall guy. And I'm like, the fall guy for what? What is it? Tell me. What is it that they're going? They're trying to pin on you? What, what did they do? And he just wouldn't say anything else. And then, so then I get frustrated again because he's not answering my questions. 
So she's telling police that before Alex died in December 2019, her husband believed Lori and Chad would try and pin the murders on him, that he would be their fall guy. And so I turn around and I'm going to walk away again, you know, because I'm just so frustrated that he's not saying anything. And that's when he tells me, either I am a man of God or I am not. Now, at the time, because I turned around and said, what does that mean? What does that mean, Alex? Tell me what does that mean? You can't... Why might Alex think that? Why would he think that Lori and Chad were going to turn around if he was also one of their co-conspirators, and blame him for all of it. I can understand, if this is in fact true, that he's the one who carried out the actual killings, that Alex was realizing, wait a second, they're going to pin all this on me. Because some people feel like if you are distant enough from the actual killing, that you can't be held responsible for it. However, as we see from the evidence, there's a lot pointing to Chad and Lori conspiring, right? And a conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people to carry out a certain act. And you just have to do something in furtherance of the conspiracy. These are called overt acts. And that's different from being charged with acting in concert for the commission of the underlying crime. There you're acting with the same mental state intending to kill. So while they sound pretty close, conspiracy versus acting in concert or accomplice liability, I mean, there's two different theories going on here that they are co-conspirators in the murders of Tylee, JJ, and Tammy, but also they are the same as whoever did the actual act of killing, right? Even if it was Alex who did the killing, they left enough of a digital footprint to be charged with the underlying crimes as well of murder. Lori's not charged with Tammy's murder. She's charged as a conspirator in Tammy's murder, but they are both charged with being murderers for Tylee and JJ. But Alex executing the plans to murder all these people, I can understand why he thought, well, they're going to blame it on me. They're going to distance themselves. I don't think if Alex survived that Chad and Lori would have gotten away with it However, it might have been a little bit easier road for them if Alex were alive and they could, like, testify against him and cut some kind of deal. Hmm. But he's gone. This is such a reminder of just how much Alex took to the grave with him, right? And it almost, this idea that he's got it in his head that they may, you know, point the finger at him, that he's going to be their fall guy, almost speaks to some sort of second thoughts or maybe not regret, but doubts about the whole situation they'd created and this world that they were living in. And so, you know, it's possible this would have been easier for Chad and Lori if Alex was still alive because they could point the finger at him and say he's the one who pulled the trigger. But it's also, I guess, possible it would make things more difficult because if he had somehow during this process developed a bit more of a conscience, he just as easily could have revealed everything he knew. Correct. And you know, on balance, it's probably better for them that he is no longer here. I know that Alex's death has been found to be natural, but there seems to be something very unnatural in the timing. Because once Tammy's body was exhumed to have a look at like what really did cause her death, because they thought it was natural initially. But when all this other stuff is happening around them, there are all these deaths around Chad and Lori. Of course, authorities had, had to take another look at Tammy's death. And Alex, at that point, might have been getting ready to crack. So I'm 
never thought that his death was just coincidental. Right. And it sort of mirrors Tammy's death in some ways. You know, Tammy died and it was incredibly out of the blue and she was in her late 40s and had always been, according to most people who knew her, relatively fit and active and well. And her death was really explained away by sort of like, oh, she had been coughing in the days before she died suddenly in the middle of the night or like, oh, she went to bed early a few times the week before. Like that would explain it away. And the same thing happened with Alex. You know, it was like he was 52 years old. And there was also this sort of description of him not feeling very well the week before his death. But that doesn't necessarily explain why somebody suddenly drops dead. Correct. I just don't buy it. And, you know, not every drug is screened for at autopsy. There are a lot in a toxicology screen, but there are some that perhaps he ended up taking a drug that's just not traced because it's not routinely tested. I don't know. I'm just suspicious and I will always be suspicious of the timing of his death. He was basically a healthy guy, as was Tammy. She was a very physically fit woman. I mean, people do die in their sleep, but there's just way too much death in a short time period around Lori and Chad for me not to be suspicious of Alex's death. Yeah, a whole lot of convenient death. Correct. But here's the thing. In order to deflect blame, you have to get around the fact that the kids were found buried in Chad's backyard. We do have some audio of the TV interview with Chad's kids, all five of them, where his daughter, Emma, tries to explain this by suggesting that Chad was set up by Lori and Alex. He was framed. I think he was fooled in the worst, most deadly way possible. Does this make any sense to you that Chad was just some poor dupe? It does not make sense to me that Chad was just some poor dupe, but I understand where his children are coming from. They love their father. They can't possibly wrap their head around their father being responsible for their mother's death, let alone the other deaths he's charged with. But Chad is just too clever to be duped into these murders. I mean, he's this published author and speaker. He's been, you know, employed all his life. He's raised a family. He had a 25-year marriage to Tammy. It's just, he's not, he's not duped. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. Yeah, and he seemed to really get off on being seen as a leader in this fringe religious community. That doesn't speak to someone who's under someone else's influence. Correct. But I do think that the combination of Chad and Lori was a toxic, combustible partnership. Mm -hmm. Based on the evidence you've seen so far, do you think this case will be a relative slam dunk for prosecutors, or do you think it's more complicated than that? Well, I hesitate to call any case a slam dunk because you just never know what a jury is going to do, and you just need one juror to kind of hold out. But you know, a slam dunk, rock solid case is something that, you know, you feel it's going to be very easy to convince jurors to find guilt. But I don't call any case a slam dunk. However, we're talking about the brutal murder of two children, a seven-year-old special needs child and a 16-year-old. That's pretty bad. And that and the mother is going to be sitting in front of the jurors. And the jurors are going to read and hear about her communications that their children are zombies, that's not good for the defense, right? So there are some facts that, you know, are good for the prosecution in that sense, but I don't think that any case is a slam dunk. Okay. I mean, most of the evidence, some of which you just alluded to, is extremely 
heinous and depraved. And it seems like that was part of what motivated the prosecution to seek the death penalty for both Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell if they're found guilty of the murder charges. Can you tell me a little bit more about why the death penalty is being pursued in this case? You know, Idaho is one of about half the states in the country that have a death penalty, right? But they don't seek it that often. There are only eight people on death row in Idaho, and only one of the eight is a woman. They have not executed in about 10 years. I think that Idaho, like a lot of states, is seeking death less and less often because the death penalty is just not as popular as it used to be in large part because life without parole is an alternative sentence. Jurors seem to want to be assured that the person will never be free again. And when you impose a death sentence, I mean, it's the ultimate sentence, you better be darn right, right? Because you don't want to take someone's life unless they really did it. And life without parole is enough assurance for a lot of jurors that the person will never be free because you never know what's going to happen on appeal. But the LWAP, life without parole sentence, seems to suffice. The idea that the prosecution is seeking death against both Chad and Lori in Idaho stems from the multiple murders and the fact that children were involved. So, I mean, I understand why the prosecution is seeking it. I don't know if the jurors will impose it, if guilt is found on one or more of the counts that are death eligible. And the counts that are death eligible are the murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder charges. So both of them, Lori and Chad, are facing multiple counts, and the jurors only have to find them guilty of one of them to move on to a penalty phase. I was looking at some of the criteria that the prosecutors put forward in terms of why they are pursuing uh, the death penalty in this case. And one of them was that the crimes were committed for financial remuneration. One of the allegations is that Chad upped Tammy's life insurance right before she died to collect hundreds of thousands of dollars. But then with the kids, just a small amount of money that the kids were getting from, I believe, state social agencies that Chad and Lori then are alleged to have put in their pockets. And it's there's something to me in a case that has so many egregious details. There's just something about the theft of this. I mean, it's nothing. It's hundreds of dollars a month that they were willing to take this money and funnel it in the kids' names into their own pockets. There's something really grotesque about that. Yes, and jurors may very well agree with you on that. So what you're talking about are the aggravating factors that the prosecution listed in their notice of their intention to seek the death penalty. They listed four of them, one of which is the financial remuneration. Jurors have to find only one of those four in order to impose death, that one of those four outweighs any mitigating evidence that will be presented at trial, assuming they get to this phase. But also, the prosecution alleged that the murders were heinous, atrocious, and cruel. That's an aggravating factor. Another one is their utter disregard for human life. And then that they are a continuing threat to society because of their propensity to commit murder. So there's four aggravating factors, but the financial remuneration really does stick in my craw for the reasons you said, because life is cheap when it comes to what the financial gain was for the deaths of the children. There's a lot for jurors to consider if they get to the death penalty phase. It will be the way in which everybody involved was killed, Tammy, JJ and Tylee. It'll be the words they spoke and texted and wrote to each other 
showing their utter disregard for human life. And because there were so many deaths in such a short period of time, and this was a, well, some people call this, you know, a little, a little cult of two, but they had a following of people. Who knows, like, where they were going to stop with this and if the killings were going to stop. So there's a good argument that they're a continuing threat to society. So there's a lot for the prosecution to work with, but they have to lay it out in a real logical way for jurors to kind of wrap their heads around it. This is not going to be fun for the defense, in my opinion. This is going to be a wild ride for all of us observing the trial, and I'm sure for the prosecutors and the investigators who have been working this case for the last few years, they've never seen anything like it, and I hope they never do again. And so what should we watch for over the next several months? Well, there'll be more motions filed, and maybe we'll get a little more evidence disclosed. Idaho does not release evidence the way the Arizona jurisdiction did, and that's we know a lot about the case because of the Arizona documents that have been released. But I think the main thing to look out for is whether or not one of them cuts a deal hmm. and tries to save his or her life by cutting a deal. It's like, okay, I'll take a plea, take death off the table, and then has to testify against the other. Which brings me to just one other point. You know, people think by getting married that maybe they can prevent one or the other from testifying. The marital privilege, the spousal privilege exists in Idaho, but it does not exist for communications you had before you got married. And a lot of plans and a lot of discussion and text messages were swirling around before the two of them got married in November, right? I mean, the kids were already dead by then. Uh, Tammy was dead. Yeah, as was Charles. Yep. As was Charles. However, um, when it comes to certain criminal conduct and also the uh, abuse or physical injury to children, there's no spousal privilege anyway. Hmm. So that may be something we'll see resurrected, you know, in the coming months if one of them decides to testify, the other side trying to prevent it. But it's probably not going to be a winning argument for most communications. It's really easy to get caught up in the scandal of this trial, in the logistics and evidence in the circus. But the families of J.J. and Tylee and Tammy and Charles still very much have to wake up every day and live with this. Here's J.J.'s grandfather, Larry Woodcock, addressing the media following Lori's arraignment. And there's four people to remember here. There's two. There's two innocent kids. And that's what this is about. It's not about me. It's not about Kay. So, Beth, I mean, you were a prosecutor in New York City. You are a longtime investigative journalist who has worked on many cases, not exactly like this one, but that have been violent and extreme and disturbing and have left behind a lot of people trying to put their lives back together. Tell me what it means to the families of victims of violent crime to finally have their day in court. It's very important to family members to have their day in court. It doesn't give them closure because I, I really don't like that term. How can you ever really get closure? But a trial does give them a measure of justice. And assuming there are convictions, then the family can get up and give victim impact statements. And their statements about the effect on their lives of the loss of their loved one at the hands of the two convicted is part of the record forever. 
and it's cathartic and it's important. And then they can be consulted in, during the pre-sentence investigation and they can be advised of anything happening with appeals or executions or parole or whatever may happen in the future. So the Idaho Constitution gives certain rights to crime victims, and those rights include the right to be at trial and be informed of the proceedings. So it will give them a measure of justice. My heart goes out to these family members, but I know that they'll never truly have closure. This episode was produced by Beth Karras, Kathleen Goldhar, and me, Sarah Trelevin. Our production assistant is Haley Choi. Mix and sound design by Philip Wilson. Our executive producers are Kathleen Goldhar, Katrina Onstadt, and Stuart Cox. Our USG audio team includes Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, Daniel Welsh, and Craig Bloom. Theme music composed by Boombox Sound. This is an Antica Productions podcast in collaboration with USG Audio. For more information, go to usgaudio.com.